It's Monday, November 20th, 2017. I'm Jeremiah Zimmerman, and this is episode 139 of the 5049 Podcast. How you guys doing? You all right? We've got a good one today. Today on the show, producer, sound engineer, sound alchemist, Recent transplant to Brooklyn by way of the Pacific Northwest uh, sound magician Randall Dunn is with us, and I couldn't be happier. Been a big fan of Randall for many years, and um, we've got a good one today. Today on the show, Randall Dunn. Before we get into it, look, I'm just going to keep talking about it until the day of the show. Um, December 5th, roulette. If you're around, I would so greatly appreciate you coming out to the show that I'm doing. It's my last show of the year, um, <clears throat> and it's a really big one for me. The, the My musical output in 2017 has very much been uh, kind of around putting this piece together. Uh, you know, I've done a lot of stuff this year, but this is sort of like the thing that I'm, I'm most happy to see be birthed into the world. It's a clarinet quartet called Sistema Mundi Totius. Clarinet with two drums. Uh, Brian Chase, who you guys know, um, and Russell Greenberg, the amazing percussionist from Yarnwire. This is a big one for me. So if you're around December 5th, Roulette, Brooklyn, come out. Um, I'm really excited, and I I look forward to people hearing this music. You know, we've done a couple soft premieres of it, and the response has been good, and um, I'd like to see some of you out. I also want to let you know that, uh, you know, I guess several weeks back, maybe a month or two ago, uh, I put up this uh, digital download uh, for a live Blood Miss record. Uh, This past week, Toby, Mario, and I went into the studio. We made the record, and um, it sounds pretty fierce. Fierce. Can I say that? Uh, I don't mean that in the metal way. I mean it in in the gay way. It sounds fucking fierce. Uh, And I look forward for you guys to hear that as well. All right, Randall Dunn. Um, Do you guys know Randall? Even if you don't think you know Randall, you probably, uh, your, your, your musical consciousness has been leaked into uh, by Randall Dunn. Randall, um, as I just mentioned, he, he moved to Brooklyn uh, this past spring. He'd been in Seattle for the past several years, uh, working with a lot of bands and musicians who I'm sure a lot of you are, are quite fond of, whether that's Bill Frizzell and Avon Kang, if it's the band Earth with Dylan Carlson, uh, Sun with Steve O'Malley and, and Greg Anderson, uh, K.O. Dot. Uh, Randall, for the past several years, has really been an integral part of, of these bands and these musicians' sounds. You guys have probably heard me say many times on this show that uh, I wish that more people within the community of the, well, the communities of, of free improvised music and, and contemporary concert music and, and all these you know sort of various worlds that overlap, that I wish they would take the sound of their records a little more seriously, that they would uh, you know introduce a vibe, as it were. And, and often when I say that, you know, I'm thinking about Randall pretty specifically. Um, for, for those of you that follow the band Earth, uh, you'll probably could all point to a specific point in time in around 2005 or so when they put out a record called Hex. Hex or Printing in the Infernal Method. Um, and it was, it's quite a different record uh, from, from their previous records. It's sort of a dark Americana thing, and it really marked a new direction that, that Earth followed for the uh, next several years. Um, 
And that was very much, and I don't think I'm, I'm talking out of turn, very much uh, part of Randall's influence. He produced the record. He, he engineered the record. And, you know, he's a real master of, of bringing a vibe, of bringing a very specific sound to the records that he works on. And it's a sound that I'm addicted to, to be quite honest with you. Um, I've been wanting to work with Randall for a number of years. It just hasn't quite panned out yet. Um, it will happen, but... And, you know, he's just a great dude. He's a great dude to talk to. He's got a lot of different interests, you know, beyond the world of, of sound and sound design and music. Um, he's, you know, like me, he uh, has studied Tibetan Buddhism for quite a while. He he reads a lot. He's an avid traveler. Uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff to talk about with Randall. Um, and beyond that, he's a musician. I, I You know, I think we kind of get into it a little bit today, but when you do... Um, you know, spend most of your time making records for other people. It, it doesn't leave quite as much time as one might hope for their own music. Um, but Randall's put out a string of really interesting records uh, under the name Master Musicians of Bukaki. I'm sure you guys, uh, some of you have heard of that band. Amazing records. Uh, I don't even know how to describe it. Sort of a very dark interpretation of world music through a mystical lens. Does that do any justice? I don't know. Randall's a good dude. Uh, and if you want to find out more about Randall, uh, just open up Google. From what I can tell, he doesn't have a dedicated webpage, uh, but I'm going to put a link on the website, uh, to an interview that he did with Tape Op a few years ago. Good shit. Randall Dunn, check him out. Uh, and he's in New York now. And if, uh, you guys are looking to, uh, get a producer to make a record sound great, consider calling up Randall. If you're enjoying this show... Please rate and review it in iTunes. Uh, and if you're really enjoying it, please consider going to the Patreon page, patreon.com slash 5049podcast, and uh, becoming a monthly donor. It helps. It helps, Bubba. And that's it. Um, I hope you guys are all doing well. Here's my conversation with Randall Dunn. <laughs> I mean, I'll say that I'll say this about Avon. I mean, I from the first time I heard his music in the '90s, I was completely enamored by it. And the, when that record, "The Story of Iceland," came out, yeah. I had it. I got it when it came out. I met him yeah. at a show at Secret Chiefs Three show, and he was just the okay. coolest good dude. Nice, nice. We had a nice talk. So I went and bought one of his CDs that had just come out. I was curious about him, and I, it did not leave my CD player okay. for months. And I mean, he's just a, a musician and. At a level of musicianship that I'm just completely in awe. No, he's the best. He's the best. Yeah. Um. Stop for two seconds. Egg order. I'm Got it. Of those. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. That's fine. Um. <laughs> I didn't even know you were involved in the first Good. thing. Don't. Yeah. But I will say this: the first uh, time I encountered your name was an Avon Kang record, which was oh, interesting. Live, le- live low to the earth in the Iron Age. Totally. Totally. How do we start? What are we doing? We're just going. Oh, we're already going. Yeah. 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 Oh, okay. Yeah. Um. That record, I got to say, and I, I feel like you know that I have a tremendous amount of respect for you. Sure. That record, I remember when it came out, I was like, this sounds a little lo-fi. Well, it's supposed to. Yeah. Completely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that record's a weird one because it's, um, I think both Avon and I would agree that that record is confessional. Confessional? Yeah. Like, if you think about the sentiment of that record, it's more like... Like you're whispering something to somebody or you're writing something down and telling somebody that you're not necessarily proud of 
something or you know what I mean like the sentiment of like confessing like a not great feeling or huh. existing in a not great feeling well, what do you mean let's talk about that I, I like melancholic yeah you know it's sad it has a element of loss as yeah. an element of rebirth I think that that's like a the things that we were interested in was like decay uh-huh. like things sounding like they're not 100% what they're supposed to be yeah there's a lot of stuff that everybody thinks is noise on there it's actually not it's um the indian ocean it's field mm. recordings of the indian ocean process through a pa system right so there's a lot of stuff that people think is like shh, like noise but it's it's actually like concept, conceptual layering of white noise as yeah, like, yeah. as a, a space yeah, you yeah. Know? and uh and then also, I think that may have been the record where I was most in a in a state. Like, what do you mean? Uh, like drugs, like right? Doing okay. Drugs. <laughs> <laughs> and even too, you know, like drinking and drugs. And I mean, I have to imagine like, that. I mean, that was you probably. What, what did you track that in two thousand? Two thousand. I mean, that's like got to be eighteen years ago or something. I mean, Seattle was a very different place at the time. It was a really different place. My studio was also really new to me in a way. And I hadn't done tons of stuff. Uh-huh. And I think there was no transaction of money for that record. It was strictly, Avon was living with me at the time. And, and it was like, let's do this thing. I mean, half of it is recorded outside with one U87. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, and yeah, like yeah. with him by the creek. Then there's like a four track of a guitar, you know? Yeah. And and the, the bands we were talking about at the time was like Dirty Three or Sun City Girls or Sure. So it's like how it was sometimes on that record an experiment for me and it's like, well, how do you make something sort of medium fidelity where you feel like it wanted to be more hi fi, but mm-hmm. it, but it just sort of failed. Right. <laughs> right. I mean it's kind of conceptual. It's like I wanted it to sound like somebody's cassette or something. You know? Yeah, Not, it didn't. It didn't deserve to be. Um, it, it wanted to be more rock than like Story of Iceland. Right. I think that was like we were railing against that a bit. Like, oh, this can't be theater of mineral nades. It can't be this. It can't be that. Yeah, it has to be like, like more like this fictitious band. Yeah. And the funny thing is, the band that the fictitious band that's on there is just Avon. It's only me and Avent, yeah, right. on there. We did everything. And there's a sequel to that record coming out. Really? Actually, yeah, on Sun City Girls label. It should be out in a month, actually. Okay. And that one's way more hi-fi and strange. It's very strange. Made like, in the same way? just Yeah, just me and him. Yeah. And But there's other people playing on it this time. There's uh, really incredible classical Korean percussionists on it. Um, and there's a really beautiful brass piece on there that I'm really into. Mm-hmm. There's, uh, I think, Shazad and Trey are playing Tempura on a few pieces, mm-hmm. on one piece. But it's too long. So pe- it's an ambitious record. It's two long pieces, and it's the same kind of thing where it's like these long, you know, they're like long and, and pastoral. Yeah. One of them, uh, to me, it's it's almost reminds me like of a Gaspar Noé film or something, like really... There's a different mood to it than Story of Iceland or any of other Avon's other work. I mean, we're here to talk about, you know, stuff other than Avon, but I have to say that That'd once be- <laughs> I started getting into all yeah, his yeah. records, like sure. he opened my eyes in a lot of ways to how much of a world you can create within an album. 
Oh, yeah, I mean, completely. he 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 really yeah. does yeah. a pretty expert job of of making what the mood. Even if the mood is mysterious, it's very clear that like he's I transported agree. you somewhere. Yeah, I totally agree. And 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 also, it's hard for me to talk about my job or my own music or my own approach to music without um, understanding the huge footprint that that guy's had in my life in yeah. general. Is like as learning about arranging. Um, aesthetics uh and and being able to be fluid and and adapt right and then just philosophically like i mean you, you you've never done one but if you, you can't do a session with it with avon without having like at least an hour of it taken up by like whatever book he's on at the moment or whatever trip he's on mm -hmm. you know so i had the pleasure of you know a good almost 16 years of that yeah <laughs> You know, of like, oh, I'm doing this now. Oh, whoa. So, you know, there's a there's a real width I can see when I listen to his music even now. Uh, sometimes I hear things like he did a record called Grass. Uh -huh. That's one of my favorites. Yeah, yeah. But I remember him talking about this stuff, you know, 10 years prior to that. Sure. Like, I, I've gotten the, the real luxury of hearing him workshop stuff and throw it away and then it showing up later mm -hmm. and, and really knowing that that's okay like, well that's also you know. like that's something i've talked about with uh with toby before is like sure. that's one of the great joys of i mean because you know most of the music i listen to these days except for like the masters yeah it, they're, they're my friends sure and the, a i roll with pretty deep cats so yeah. the yeah. music is is good on its own totally. but the fact that i have these friendships with them yeah. provides this other aspect to it uh sort of like what you just oh, described God, no totally where yeah. i know where yeah. this different stuff is coming from and what mm. the process of them internalizing it and then externalizing it has been totally and the other thing that i've really learned like especially in the case of like stephen o'malley from sun and and you know all the musicians that i've worked with is that there's an interconnectedness even to that circle of their own creativity that you kind of come and go and and you're in some of the same spaces because you know each other mm -hmm. or you're talking about philosophical things and then you realize that they were applying that to music. And so those relationships become really deep, not just in being able to digest their music, but like knowing them as people, as mm -hmm. like human beings, you know. And that's something I really didn't think about in the early part of my career. But as time has gone on with the being able to look back it's like, whoa, that's always actually been there. Well, I mean, what yeah. was the original vision? You're, you're not from Seattle. No, no, I grew up in uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan. I didn't know that. Up in the Bible lapel. Is that, are you a youper? <laughs> is that what that means? No, no, Grand Rapids is like uh, southwest. Okay. So I yeah, idiot. so it's kind of near, it's, it's near uh, Lake Michigan. Okay, yeah. Kind of by Battle Creek. Yeah. Like over Kellogg'sville, I think, is over there. Are you, your family still out there? No, no. Uh, they they were in Texas for a while. My brother's down in Texas yeah. with his kids, and uh, so they're down there. And um, uh, I see them often. And yeah, so uh, so, then, so nobody's in Michigan anymore. Okay. And, you know, are you okay with that? Yeah, I'm fine with that. Yeah, it must be, I mean, I'd imagine although it's be... Texas, so I, you know, I mean, yeah. I, it's a it's a love hate. It's I, a love. -hate I mean, scenario. Texas is not uh, not my favorite place. No. I haven't spent much time there, but I was no. just there. Actually, I was just there with uh, on tour with Chelsea Wolf. Where in Austin? I was in uh, El Paso, which I really had kind of a, a. I've had two interesting Texas interactions in the last year that kind of deeply, yeah, made me think about America. <laughs> yeah, one was McAllen, Texas. That's where my mom was born. That's crazy! Wow, yeah. yeah. But what a 
near Brownsville. Interesting, beautiful place, though. I've never been. It's really surreal. And uh, yeah, and then El Paso is like, I guess that's the Flint of Texas. I don't know. It's a shithole. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's really, it's tough down there. And I've worked down there, actually. I worked at a place called Sonic Ranch that's like, Pretty well-known studio down there. And I think the that Yeah, place, yeah, yeah. might have made a record there. Yes, they yeah. did. And also Animal Collective. Right. I did a record with uh, Akron Family. There. Right. Was, okay, yeah. I know that studio. I mean, I know of that studio. Yeah, so that that place is right on the border of Juarez, of course. And um, yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed Texas this time. It was like... It's a very dark vibe stomach. in the area that you're describing. Yeah, El Paso is like, you know... I mean, that's why I called it the Flint of Texas. Is like, Yeah. Because Flint is pretty like, whoa. I mean, it's like, they food. literally were like, oh, you're drinking poison for water? We don't mm-hmm. give a fuck. Like, it, it, to say that, like, it's been forgotten is an understatement. Yeah, that wasn't even the Trump administration. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, that's how dark it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, how forgotten can you be if that's the I have to imagine, though, you know, uh, that being on the <laughs> in a place like that on the border of Juarez, if you're making music that has maybe an edge to it, a little darkness to it. It helps. It's a good scene. It's got to help, yeah. It's got to help, right? There has to be some, like... David Lynch mariachi vibes going on down there I want to know about. Yeah. But I don't know. I mean, I just like went and looked at the border and I was like, that's enough. I'm going to go back to the bus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? I do know what you mean. Like when you get face to face with it, it's a little frightening. But we played in McAllen and that was great because that wasn't this tour. That was the last tour. But man, that was like, that was kind of cool because it was full and everybody was like, into it. Super excited. They came from several cities and then afterwards you walk outside and it's like, Somebody turned it into Miami, like in two hours. You're like, how did it turn from like this totally weird people, border town to Miami? People just want to get fucked up. Yeah, people and really want to. They want to dance yeah. and they want to look good, and they know? just want to forget yeah. the horror of oh, yeah. <laughs> reality. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so you're from Michigan. How'd you end up in? In you went straight to Seattle. I went straight to well, I kind of waffled for a minute. You knew uh, you had to go to a city. I knew I had to do something. Because it was either stay home in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and likely die. Right. Uh, that was probably the, the first choice I had. I mean, I, I actually started as like a, a filmmaker. I had a kind of weird um, community access show called The Cavalcade in high school really? with my friends. <laughs> yeah. Which was basically like really bad horror movies that we made. You would show films and then in yeah, addition, talk you about guys them. would. Yeah. yeah, we would just be right. we, weird people. You know, like but John, that's a, there's like a, John Carpenter. But there's so a tradition amazing. to that. I think there is, yeah. No, there absolutely. Yeah. Do you know Goulardi? No. Goulardi, no. Yeah. Uh, I mean, his son has sort of outshone him in fame. His son yeah, is yeah. P.T. Anderson. Okay, okay. But yeah, Goulardi was a late night horror host uh, in Cleveland okay, in the 50s. Yeah. And he would yeah. like speak like some hipster shit. And Interesting. Yeah, we made our own films. And then edited them. Yeah. And so, you know, at that time in public school, there was no, you couldn't have like a video. There wasn't like, hey, here's the video arts program. We're talking late 80s, early 90s? This is, uh, yeah, like up until 91. Yeah. You know, like, so four, that was four years prior to that. And, and I started just skipping class, basically, and going to the, the community access room was located in the middle of the school. Mm-hmm. So me and my friend Ryan Liskey, we we would just basically bail on stuff when like gym, okay, whatever. Yeah, fuck that. Maybe we would just sneak in there on lunch and then go right through gym and just edit weird yeah. stuff. But you know, to us, whether we knew it or not, that was the most 
beneficial to the preparation for what we were going to do. Yeah, of course. Whereas like being in a gym class and being laughed at isn't really productive for... No, no, no. It's, I, <laughs> one might argue producer. it's counterproductive. <laughs> yeah. so, so I knew kind of early on, I knew, but I didn't know. I knew that being there was more inspiring and better to me. And that was a place that I was like, when I was doing that, it's like, you know, it was related to music and imagery and mm-hmm. sound. And so I knew there was something about the way imagery and sound worked in my mind um, that made me want to go into one or the other. And that was really inspired by David Lynch, for sure. I just want to stop for a second, because already I'm hearing a lot of, like, I'm thinking about my own time in high school. Sure. And I think about getting into, like, crazy bands, specifically getting into David Lynch, getting into William S. Burroughs, getting into this world of shit where I was like, oh, there is good stuff out there. Yes, totally. Like, I can... Yeah, and you have to peel it back. It's like, you know, I remember... You know, I, man, I mean, how do you find these things? Especially back then in the late 80s, it's like, you couldn't just like... No, you got to know a guy. You couldn't like look something up on the internet and then have the whole lineage within 40 minutes. No, you like, need a guy. I had a guy. Yeah, yeah, there was a couple guys. There was a guy named Ryan who was my good friend who somehow, I don't even know how he got it, but you know, it starts with one thing and then another thing and another thing and it just right. happens. Twin Peaks was a huge thing for me yeah. when it came on. I remember specifically the feeling I had, and I guess that was 90. 89, I think, was the first season. 89. I remember watching it when it came on. Yeah, me too. And I knew there was a reason I had to. And then like, my parents were like, this is stupid. And I'm like, get the fuck out of the room. <laughs> or I think I went in the other room. And then there was one night where they wouldn't let me watch it. And I actually like used to be able to tune in uh, TV on my radio for some reason. Oh, weird. And like I could get it if you go to the low channel. You could hear it, but you couldn't see you it. You could hear it and not see it. So I mean, I, sometimes I would go to sleep listening to ABC on my radio. The sound of Angelo's yeah. music? Yeah, Angelo's music, the sound work, the Foley work, all yeah. that stuff. So I have vivid memories of that and like Dark Shadows I would yeah. listen to. <laughs> you know, they'd be like, okay, go to bed. And I'd be like, you guys don't even know. I want to watch TV. Yeah. In my mind, you know. So uh, that's something like, you know, and I was also really interested in um, just sound, you know, like my preoccupation with sound probably started even earlier where my dad had these cassettes of old radio shows he he would listen to sometimes um, of like uh, War of the Worlds, Orson Welles. The original broadcast. Yeah. Or Abbott and Costello or this one about like this escaped murderer and the, the rain in the car. So... You know, uh, unlike a lot of people now where there's always image attached to sound, I I had a lot of sound that I would attach to something in my brain. I would listen to it mm-hmm. more, you know, esoterically, I guess. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so then that it kind of kept going and I was like, well, I think I'll go to Seattle and go to school for sound. Like, I, I could be way off, but was yeah. Washington attractive to you? Was that connection to Twin Peaks at all there? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Way more so than grunge. Sure. So I always, I remember my mom always saying like, well, we like these bands. I was like, yeah, I like those bands. But actually, I just, to be honest, in, in 1991, when I was thinking about moving, all I really wanted to do was buy a nice suit, cut, cut my hair short, and smoke and drink a pipe, coffee. Yeah. Drink coffee and stand and around in the woods and the be woods. like, yeah. maybe not that. but Well, I mean, yeah. That would be fine, too. <laughs> uh, and smoke a pipe and just be like, you know, wax about that. Come to find out, my later in life, I found out that my grandfather actually grew up in Medford, Oregon, 
and was like somehow affiliated with the Dunlumber situation, which mm-hmm. is a big lumber company out there. And so, Don I kinda, yeah. And so, I had a real, you know, my grandfather who was into Star Trek and all these kind of things, but was real quiet about it. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, I always was like, oh man, like that's the guy really who got me into all this stuff. And then my other grandfather was a Freemason Shriners French horn player who was the only musician I know in my family. Mm-hmm. He's the only one. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, it's a little bit of like this Northwest vibe from that end and Lynch and like Masonic. French horn and weird organs yeah, on yeah, that yeah. side. So I think those two things, like the real tangible memory of those two things in my childhood, so and Twin Peaks, and then getting into like rock music, kind of later. I was never really in bands, you know. Right. I was always more interested in like synthesizers or industrial music or things like this, you know. So that didn't come until I moved. Um, later i mean i always played sax because it was in a high school band but, mm-hmm. but that was like not working you know? but what you but just described of, i mean you know of of sitting in your room and just listening to the sounds the, being a recording engineer is in it's even though you're constantly around people you're yeah. by yourself whether you're in front yeah. of the monitors no, 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 or you're using true. headphones, For like sure. it's kind of a hermetic existence. Yeah, your relationship to vibration is becomes very, very existential. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah, know? yeah, yeah. I remember real distinctly like knowing that there was something different about what I was doing or processing sound. I remember there's a the Pink Floyd the wall live. There's a moment where the helicopter sort of pans in this very uh-huh. unique way. I remember calling my dad in. And I was young, I, you know, I was like, wasn't doing drugs or anything. Like, I was not doing drugs. Right. And I remember, I, you know, my dad, who was a high school principal, he was my high school principal. Are you fucking kidding in. me? No. That's the so, worst thing I've ever heard. Yeah. So he came in and uh, I was like, hey, man, listen to this. This is so oh, cool. Man. And I cranked it. And I remember him standing there looking at me and the helicopter does this thing. And I'm like, isn't that amazing? And he just looks at me and goes, God damn it. And he left the room. He's convinced you're he knew. Friends. No, he knew. You know, yeah. he knew. Like, oh no, man, this guy's gonna do this. Uh, yeah, you know. So it's like uh, totally different lifestyle. You know, I think he knew. You know? Yeah, but he was an interesting guy too. And is he still around? No, no, he passed. Yeah. So he's uh he was a super interesting guy. You know, um, was he into cool shit? Secretly. I think you have to when I look back, when I look back, I remember him giving me two things, a copy of Siddhartha and a Kurt Vonnegut book called notes from the high school underground. Uh-huh. And there were really specific times in my life. And I didn't know it then, but I know it now that both of those things were like, um, he was like, yeah, yeah. He was giving you it's some cool. stuff for your, yeah. It's like, I, I get where you're going. You know what I mean? Like he kind of understood, mm-hmm. you know? So he, you know, he was an interesting guy, really incredible illustrator, actually. But you know, he didn't do that. And then, you know, you can tell from your dad's record collection what kind of person he is. What was in that collection? The fucking ventures, like tons of surf rock, yeah, and like you know, um, the best stuff of the Beatles. And, Does that you mean know, the later stuff? Yeah, like yeah, you know, like oh, Sergeant Pepper's, right? And, like that kind of stuff, Revolver, and. You know, you could just tell. And then there was like a lot of Martin Denny, 
which is every piece of music you've described yeah. so far, the ventures martin danny late beatles is very colorful music for sure sound is at for the sure. is like the sound of the record yeah. is part of the composition and exactly. the presentation of the idea yeah so i remember stealing his record collection sometimes going downstairs and putting it on it was an old record player down there which was like put away yeah and i remember playing the ventures but i played it at the wrong speed slower or faster slower uh-huh. and i didn't <laughs> know like earth it. sounded like earth <laughs> and i sometimes think that that's like oh that's that's how i ended up there like yeah the heaviness of sounds that i like or i don't know it's a interesting it's not, uh, I, I i you know there's so much you've already said that mirrors so closely to a lot of yeah. my own experience that's with cool, you know yeah. with twin peaks with with you know exploring sound um so it's it's interesting to me to just like think back and like you know I, I played a show at the Stone a couple of years ago and this girl that I we literally were friends from the you know our parents were friends before either of us were born. Um, she came to the show and she was like, I always I remember you would just make strange sounds like growing up. Right, you're yeah, always yeah, making yeah. sounds and yeah, you know, and it's so yeah. cool to see you do that like in front of people. <laughs> yeah, my thing was impressions. I got yeah. re- I was really into Rich Little. You know, Rich Little. Yeah, do you know Rich Little? Uh-uh. Rich Little was like a like a, an eighties comedian whose whole thing was doing sound. Like not Michael the dude from Police Academy. No, no, Michael Winslow was also <laughs> yeah. that's also somewhere in my, my DNA. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> I I can definitely feel like oh, I yeah, channel him. Yeah. yeah. But no, no, he would mostly Rich Little was sort of in with like Sinatra and all of them. So like okay. if you watch the roast, yeah, there's yeah. like a guy that gets up and does like a Ronald Reagan. And then right. he does a Don Rickles and he does, right. you know, so like, that's one thing I got from my dad, which I, I really cherish, which is like, he was into those guys, like Orson Welles and like. These fucking weirdos. Yeah. Yeah. He was into like those guys that were like that generation, which were, you know, cause he, my father was older than my f- friend's father. So, you know, whereas they were like, you know, well, Ken Kesey or they were in Vietnam. Right. Right. My father was a high school teacher when Vietnam was happening. He, so he, You know what I mean? Right. So he was much older than. All of my my parents were older than my friends' parents by just enough. Just enough, yeah. yeah. Where it was like, you know, a suit versus like an army jacket in the sixties. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. That's that's something that, and I think that's something that still resonates with me today. I think I got a work ethic from him that's different, and that's some old guard shit for sure. Yeah, yeah. So I think you know sometimes there's like a. A lot of things creatively that I got from him that are yeah. Have you? I mean, total side note. Have you been watching that Ken Burns thing? Uh, I have. Yeah, yeah. The very first thing that struck me about that is that I'm really glad that's happening right now Mm -hmm. because as it relates to like American colonialism and the rethought of the last forty years of American politics, not just being the binary of left and right, Mm -hmm. but just being one of constant oppression in the world yeah i think that's important it's you know devastating me watching this thing especially for younger generations who who just need history right now i think i think some sense of context perhaps yeah yeah. Uh, i think world as world war ii gets farther away and as world war three gets much closer (laughs) yeah yeah as we get into the next era i think it's it's important to reflect on the the stuff that happened between world war ii and now uh eisenhower uh, Korean War. Well, you know, we're, you know. we're, we're going to get back to the music very quickly. I just got to say, like, I'm constantly astounded when I say, when I make a comment or a reference to something, and younger, okay, not younger, when people 
like look at me like I they don't I'm, I have ten heads. Sure. And people pointed that out to me before, like, hey, it's a little obnoxious that like you respond so strongly when someone doesn't know something you're talking about. Sure. But I, I truly feel like I, I made I was having a conversation with someone the other day and I brought up the Battle of Okinawa. Sure. And yeah. I have I, I stand firm that if you're an American, if you're a human being in the world, yeah. you need to know that Okinawa is not just the fucking resort that it is now. For sure. That yeah. psychically, emotionally, that historically, is, spiritually, yeah. some very serious lapses in humanity took place on that geographic yeah. and area. And also it's been an occupied presence in Japan for how many years, right. you know? And, you know, I mean, a lot of people don't know how to break it down. It's like, you know, MacArthur wrote the current Japanese constitution. You know what I mean? Right. Like, that's something to think about. That's, like, been a subjugated yeah. culture for quite a while. One long of the time. superpowers. Yeah. And, and also, it's like, you know, also people don't know. I mean, a lot of people that I talk to these days, you mentioned, oh, more people died in the firebombing of Tokyo than, than in the right. atomic bomb. Right. And so that's something to think about too. I mean, you know, it's like, but I think that's like again, it's it's like context. It's like we grew up, and our grandparents and parents had that trauma. Yeah, it was related. It was more palatable. And like I said, as we get further and further on, you know, people who are in their twenties now, their parents weren't even they they weren't even Vietnam vets. They were running like tech startup companies when Clinton when Clinton was in office. We're, we're gonna get back to the music, you know? but I, I feel I, I've I, I don't know, man. I guess like my mom's and dad's parents were in the thick of World War Two. They were adults. Sure. My, my dad's parents were getting killed in camps. My mom's dad was you know shooting yeah. Japanese people out of the sky. Wow. And then during Vietnam, you know, my mom was watching, you know, like they were on the front lines of that, you know, they were dealing yeah. with it. So like generationally, like w the time that I was born lined up very well with like with history in that way. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Sure. Like how I experience it. Yeah. And it is weird. I've, I've noticed that people being born, you know, in the last 20 years, it's like they, they're not born with a firsthand awareness of what a great war does to the psyche of the people raising them. No, because... uh all of the actions of the Gulf War and the Iraq War have been more shrouded. Yeah. And that then that brings me back to the Vietnam thing, which is why I think it's really important that people hear that and they understand that that's how America has been waging war. For, since we just A long started, time. Yeah. And they don't talk about it and it's covert and there's always something happening and there's people being oppressed regardless of the administration mm -hmm. that help us maintain this feeling of supremacy yeah and it isn't just a binary of one political party or the other it's flat out western supremacy bearing in mind yeah. that supremacy to be very clear doesn't just equate to a person who stands in one place looking down at others saying look at these savages look at these animals no no no, no it's, no. it's more more likely like we're really great Economic. people yeah, yeah. we're doing a great yeah, job exactly you know, you know like yeah. really being uh Feeling quite comfortable in your beliefs and in your yeah, righteous, world. yeah, yeah, righteous, which isn't always the as history goes on, isn't always the correct position. You find out, no, <laughs> you know what I mean. So, I, so you went to Seattle, yeah, to go to school, uh, yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. Would, oh, I just want one more thing about yeah. you know, the, the music is amazing, it's interesting, it's, it's beautiful, yeah, yeah. He's, um, I gotta say. I've never been like a super Nine Inch Nails guy. I've always yeah. loved. I've always yeah. enjoyed Nine Inch Nails. Always yeah. from you know age twelve or whenever I first became aware of them. 
I'm I'm enjoying his trajectory. Yeah, he's great. He's my model for aging. He's doing it quite gracefully. <laughs> I think he's doing really well. Did you like and him? staying really relevant yeah. and like being sleaziest person on Twin Peaks, like getting better at what he does. Totally, and and deeper, and also like wearing, getting older in a cool way, like yeah. really rad and. Like being a grumpy old man, really in a great way, and yeah. when he needs to, and yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just wanted to say that because he's he's a huge part of why, of course, I started doing what I do for sure. The sound of I, I would say in particular the downward spiral, the it's sound beautiful. of that record changed everything. Yeah, it was a game changer for me. I mean, like I I heard music uh, with like another dimension to yeah. it that was clearly intentional for sure. Like you, listen, you know, I don't know if you noticed when you walked in. I was listening to John Lee Hooker, and those yeah. records sound a certain way, and it's great. And the yeah. master engineers made that sound. Totally, this is like another level of coloring the music. Absolutely, like uh, there was three records that ha- landed at me at exactly the same moment. One was the first Naked City record, one was that record, and one was Bitches Brew. Yeah, that's all you need. That was an era shifter for me. That was like, okay, I was here, now I'm over here. You know, like I'm going. In this All direction. three of those records will mm-hmm. righteously fuck anyone up forever. Yeah, I picked a sax back up because of that moment. Because of Naked yeah. City, because of Bitches Brew, or just the whole just the whole thing of jazz, and then also being, you know, when I went out to Seattle, the first two people I met randomly walked into a gig was a bass player who's no, no longer with us, named Matthew Sperry. Um, His name just came up the other day. Yeah, he's he was like such a powerful force in the Seattle free music scene. Um, he played I don't know if you know. Yeah. Do you know Andrew Drury? I do know Andrew. Drummer Andrew? Yeah. yeah. So I had an octet um, that originally Matthew was in. Uh, with Lori Goldston, um, uh-huh. Steve Moore, Bill Horst. Yeah, he's a great musician. Yeah. Andrew Drury, Paul Hoskin played contrabass clarinet, baritone. I was playing sax and some other stuff. And uh, I had a pretty intense, like, six to eight years of really being deep in the Seattle free improvising. Yeah. Wally Shoup. And uh, so I met Matthew. My first kind of alone night, I walked into this cafe. I think it was called Lux, maybe. Had this like weird kind of vampire vibe to it. And Stuart Dempster uh, from Deep Deep Listening. The great. And Matthew were there. I had no context for Stuart at that time. You know. You hadn't heard the Sister in Chapel album. No, I knew knew nothing. I knew nothing. Like that stuff was like, like I was more in the Zorn thing, which to sure. me is like fast, a lot of color, a lot yeah, of stuff. Yeah, and also happening. it seemed more like, you know, those guys to me were more like rock stars sure. the, in, than classical musicians or something, right? Or jazz musicians, right? It was, right. It was more more like that, and in my perception, and and so I hadn't thought about that, and you know, when I met those guys, like that again, it just came back down to sound. It was like, oh my god, sound! Like it's all really about sound, mm-hmm. and I can play saxophone. You playing tenor, and I don't, alto? I was playing alto and then yeah. Barry later. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, yeah, so I started doing it again. And I would go over to Matthew's house a lot. And, you know, from there, he's my next phase guy where he was like, oh, here's Roscoe Mitchell's solo. Oh, God. Yeah. You know, and, and it was always like, yeah, I like John Zorn. He's like, oh, man, well, here's Ornette Coleman. Here's You this. didn't know Ornette. No, I had no real, right. I was like completely ignorant going mm-hmm. into this. I had. The only sax player that was in my life at that time was who I met next after that, which was uh, Skerrick. Skerrick. Yeah, who's at that time was like heavy into Critters Buggin', which sort of satisfied my bitches brew. And so I sort of walked this line of these two 
groups of musicians in Seattle, which was the free improvised music community, and then like the more out jazz rock community, and then the rock community. So mm-hmm. I, I was like right down the line. Right. And you could do that in Seattle. At that know, time. At that time, yeah. Because this, what was the city like at that time? I mean, it was wide open, and there was like so much more commingling of musicians going on. Like Lori Goldston was playing with Nirvana, and you know, Avon was like playing Wah Wah Fusion with like this group called uh, Deformations, which was huh. like a funk version of Albert Eiler or something, Shit. you know? Okay. And that was an amazing group. And those were all like deep, deep musicians from like um this band called image which was a sort of all black badass rock band from seattle mm-hmm. and uh super kind of the last poets vibe and mm. hendrix and like mm. bad brains you know kind of that sort of attitude to it so i found myself in this place that was like musically diverse certainly wasn't like diverse and in other ways but right music and the music community of Seattle was so fertile at that time in the nineties that, you know, that lasted for a very long time. Yeah. And, and so then I met through Skerrick, I met Wayne through Wayne. I met Avon through Avon. I met this person and then and it just slowly gained yeah. more knowledge and got to, uh, start to realize like, Oh, Stuart Dempster, geez. Or, you know, I'm around these, these people, people are heavies. Yeah. They're so heavy. And I yeah. didn't even know when I was doing it, even with Avon, it was more, I would have been, you know, in the early 90s, more excited about Mr. Bungle and him than, like, him and Bill Frizzell. Right. But that changed quickly. You sure. You know what I mean? Like, that was, like, the rock thing when you're young is appealing, but then later you're like, whoa, this is actually... Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, this is happening over here. So, you know, Bill was there. Bill Frizzell was there. Wayne was there. So I was like, what a weird thing that I heard Zorn's music and then ended up here and these guys are here. Yeah. That was random. Right. You know what I mean? And so it just felt like somebody just placed me where I was supposed to be. Yeah, it felt good. Yeah, it felt really good. And and then uh, it became very apparent that there was a gap of people recording. Isn't you that know? something? Yeah. Like, don't you think, like, every, you know, I'm a musician and sure. I also do some recording. And yeah. every fucking musician on this planet would rather be in the studio with the musician behind the board. Yes. You know? Yeah. Isn't that, like, I, I, it's always blown my mind yeah. that there aren't more people, yeah. you know, who, are, who do both things. It's rare. Yeah. Yeah, it's really rare. I think, you know, I mean, both of those things are extreme lifestyle decisions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you can maybe do one or the other totally well. Yeah. You know, I am constantly sacrificing one or the other. Sure. You know, which is, for better or worse, in my opinion, for the better. Um, but you know, it's like, yeah, I mean, I, I found really quickly, like, this is good to be here. This is good to do this music with people. And then it was like, man, I learned so much so fast and it's such an invaluable. uh, So were you, were you doing sessions for people at studios? No, I was actually going to school. I was going to the Art Institute of Seattle. To study? To study. What? uh, Uh, audio engineering for film. Oh, but I passed all my qualifications, which got you into the studio. And I, I was working with a partner, Mel Detmer, who I originally uh-huh. um, owned. We owned a, a, a lift, the, right. the studio that we did together. And I learned a ton from her. And um, so we were doing this thing where we would both, we both passed all our quals. So you had to do that to 
get the studio time, and then you could do whatever project you wanted. So what we would do is the, the studio time was in four-hour blocks. So what we basically did is ganged up and just booked eight hours. We'd back-to-back. Oh, right. And then we would just make records, you know. For we people st- We started that. making records, yeah. Yeah, and, and it wasn't very many before we realized, like, she ended up getting a, a position at a studio called Hanzik to do mastering and okay. started her whole career. And, and then I basically was like, well, I'm going to quit. This place is expensive. I'm already doing what I want. Wait, you did. You know, you didn't finish school. I, I definitely did not. Well, finish you know, school. No, audio engineering degree is worth <laughs> uh, nothing. It, it now it is. Yeah, I is mean, it? even more so now. It's no, it's not. Yeah, it's, I, I have it's one. It's like it's worth nothing. No, I mean, if you want to teach, maybe if teach you what? if you want to, you can teach audio engineering. I teach audio engineering. Sometimes. Yeah, I know. I'm just saying. Like, but if, I know what you mean. If I could go back in time and say, "Hey, man, you want to keep the 25 grand and like yeah. sink it into gear, or fucking yeah. learn how to gear work for on sure. a country session?" Gear is the choice yeah. of that for sure. You know, but um. But, you know, I was real lucky, too. I mean, you know, Skerrick was kind of hot shit in Seattle at that time. And so sure. I, I really shadowed him a lot. And there was Avon was like, you know, he was nice. Like, uh, he would let me do stuff. Yeah. I was enthusiastic. People wanted cheap recording. I, they, yeah, they, thought they still I, do. <laughs> they thought I did it well. So I was like, yeah, man, I'm, I'm down. Yeah. And then it took a little while. And then we started a studio and... You know, that studio lasted for a long time. But I mean, you know, in the words, you know, someone I, I came in, uh, my good friend Jamie Saff said to me yeah. many, many years ago when he still had a studio in Brooklyn, he was like, you know, one of the great financial black holes Oh yeah, in all of mankind yeah. is the recording studio. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's also like, if you want to pick something where you will never stop working, right. you know what I mean? It's like, I made a real conscious decision to not pursue having another studio for sure. I work one, yeah, at you other people's... Away from Aleph, you said. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, one, because of, like, a mystical reason, and two, because of, like, I am really love going to studios that have been built really idiosyncratically by the people who own them. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. I, learn, I learn more. And I learn new things, new gear, new ways of doing things, and it keeps me engaged in the activity of recording. I found a stagnation to working at my own studio where it was originally really rewarding because uh-huh. I was discovering. But then once I dialed the sound in, I felt like it became repetitious. Yeah. So, so breaking that in the last mm, eight years or so has been like the most rewarding thing for. Yeah, but know, I wonder, like, I mean, you know, the great thing about having your own room, whatever your yeah. setup is, you know, yeah. let's say you're working with a fucking Mackie, sure, you know, in the 57s, like, yeah. if you know how to, like, you know, drive drive that board, you know sure. your room, even yeah. if your room is, like, an apartment, yeah. there's something really unique and special about that. That's and true. I, and those yeah. great Rudy Van Gelder recordings. Yeah, I mean, that's... that's we're literally, like... That's so specific, yeah. So, it's like, I, I, I understand and I get what you're saying, that, like, oh, this job feels boring because... Not boring, not boring. I just just... I don't want to impose that on right. everything that I do. That's, you know what I mean? I hear you, but yeah. I actually, th- I just think like that imposition is actually yeah. tantalizing in a way. It is. I like to but hear. But what, what a greater thing if you can have that no matter where you are. Right. That's what I want. Like, right. I want that to be more important than the gear. Mm-hmm. Like the way yeah. I think about sound and, and you know, um, to be the the focus for myself rather than 
oh, I have to have this or I have to have that. I still make pretty intense decisions like, okay, this record I'm mixing on an API or this record I'm going to mix on an Eve or I still engage. And you could do that. Yeah. Yeah. I still engage in those superstitions. And actually it's like, to be quite honest, like I couldn't afford even when I owned a studio to get to that level of gear anyway. Right. You're not going to get it. So it's really beautiful now that I can just waltz in and do that. I'm lucky that people support my superstition of doing that. And I'm lucky that I get budgets that can do that sometimes. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, I'll do anything anywhere. I can always adapt, but, but, um, no, but that's that, that there's a lot to be said for that. Yeah. I'm lucky. I'm lucky. I don't think, but also it's a matter of, of, of leveraging things in such a way that, you know, you deserve to be in those rooms and you deserve to be in those rooms based on the work that you've done and the understanding that you've accrued over the years of doing this work. That's the hope. (laughs) <laughs> it's the hope and it's, yeah, but, that's the you know hope. it's yeah. it, it's and I'm not saying that to like butter your bread but what I'm no, saying no, is like you, you know you have successfully transcended the room that you began to feel not so inspired by yeah well it wasn't even I mean I felt really inspired for a long time yeah. but then then it was like you know after a while you're in a basement with no light or you know dude I, I gotta say just stuff, as like a sidebar know? being a recording engineer if you're not fucking careful, it's like the most unhealthy job it's really available. Bad. It's like it's being a really fucking bad. toll operator yeah. on the highway. Yeah, I only think maybe the last 10 years I've been more proactive about that. You know? you A, you work too much. Yeah. B, you're around, lo- like, you know, like if OSHA came to my job, they'd be like, hey, this they'd is fucked the- up. You yeah. got to go home. Like, turn it down. Right. Like, I'm basically sometimes sitting, like, next to a like a parked semi truck for like nine hours, you know? And it's right. Well, we'll talk about that. (laughs) I mean, yeah, between the, the, the sound that you're absorbing between the amount of time that you're sitting in a chair, between Mm -hmm. the amount of time that you're not getting vitamin D from natural light. Oh, totally. Between, you know, you know, eating takeout, you know, three or four. I mean, it's a big, it's a big thing now for me to look for studios that have natural light. Yeah. It's a big thing. We got to call up David Gilmore and get on his boat in India. Man, totally. I would. Paul, Paul, uh, from from Microsoft, yeah. he's got a, a yacht, you know. So. Wait, so so, uh, when did you come into contact with Steve O'Malley and and that? That's a random thing that happened. I wrote Greg Anderson at Southern Lord. Somebody had introduced me um, to a record called "Teeth of the Lions, Rule of the Divine." That was yeah, made, that yeah it was made by. Uh, Billy Anderson made it, or mixed yeah. it. It was made in a rehearsal space, come to find out. And I was like, this is so extreme. Billy is a dude, man, that not yeah, enough great. people are talking about. No, he's great. Billy's a heavy yeah. dude who has contributed a lot to heavy music. Yeah, his his era of heavy music is very important. Yeah. Sleep. Yep. Uh, the first Phantomas record. Yeah, Cathedral. Cathedral. All those, re- I mean, yeah. he He was also another cat that I kind of... Whenever I would hear about an engineer that I wanted to learn something from, I always try to interact with him. Whether it was Chad Blake or Husky Huskolds, mm-hmm. Billy, I brought him up to work on the ASVA record with me. Um, I would want to work with someone to learn. Yeah. And because, you know, when you work with people, you there's two things that happen. One, you learn something new. Two, you learn what you're doing that's good. Right. You get sort of like, it's um, like, oh, he has a problem with that too, or... Oh, that's how he does it. That's how I do it. Killer. You know? Right. That's just as important as learning all the stuff that you don't know. That you, sure. That you never did. Sure. And I feel like I'm still constantly always in that space. I always still feel, um, 
like I want to do things again like for the first time. And that's kind of what I meant by the, like the studio. You get uninspired. Totally. Because you allow yourself to get in that mindset. And if you can stay in the first time, like every session's a new parameter. Yeah. You know, that's a good thing. I think that's the, the, that's the ideal. The people you're working with, everything you can feel that way. And sometimes, you know, I've had years where that didn't work. Of course. <laughs> I got grumpy or like, I'm not making enough money or whatever. It's, you know? it's a job that is conducive to grumpiness. For sure. For sure. And you have to be. I think it's really important as a musician as you get older and as a uh, um, engineer or producer, too. It's, you know, I mean, mostly I've worked at being a producer. So my job yeah. is infinitely different than an engineer. Yeah. And I'm lucky. I'm really lucky well, about that. I, 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 let, let's get into that because there's something I like to say about that. But you wrote Greg Anderson oh, yeah, I was an email. Or I wrote Greg an email and I said, man, I love Sun. Yeah. I heard Sun. Uh, Flight of the Behemoth. It's early. Uh, yeah. yeah. And I was like, this is fucking cool, man. I don't yeah. know what's going on here. And it was just... Was Greg just, living in Seattle all the time? Uh, no, but he was from Seattle, which also I didn't know about. I didn't know that either. Which also worked in the favor of... Like, so yeah. many things about Seattle worked in my I mean, Steve's my from favor. Seattle, yeah. I think. Yeah. So many things about being in Seattle at that moment worked in my favor. So somewhere in my late... Like, I think I might have been 30, I wrote Greg and we got talking a little bit he was like yeah thanks man and then it never heard anything and uh then i kind of came in contact with dylan carlson who, yeah who i worked with on the an asva an early asva piece oh. then um that not a lot of people have heard and then kind of stayed in touch with dylan um because where did I mean? Oh, he was working at a frame shop and someone told really? me and an old bandmate, John Schuler. And John Schuler was like, we should go there. Just say hi. And we did. And John had him open up for uh, the very first Master Musicians right. show. So wait, you went to the frame shop not because you needed something framed. You went No, to because th Dylan was there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Dylan, like, you need to stop for a second. And, and Steve, you know, like, quite literally invented a style of music. Dylan did, yeah. for sure. Yeah. And Steven has... Steve and Greg took it for, right. further, you yeah. know, like, or in another, they've gone into opposite directions. So you can't really say further or closer. Right. So, I, so, okay. So I encountered Dylan and he was playing with Adrian and they have a totally unique language. Were they calling it Earth at the time? We, they did call it Earth at that show. So yeah. that was the first comeback Earth show was them opening for Master. And they were doing that sort of Western... Cormac kind of, yeah. It almost, to me, sounded more like codeine or something. Like, right. It was a little more, it was way more weird. Yeah. And uh, so then Greg got a hold of me and was like, hey, I saw that show. You did that show. I've been talking to Dylan about doing this record. And so my very first record for Southern Lord was... Um, Hex. The Earth record, Hex. Yeah. So I, I that started me down very long road of collaboration with all those cats i mean that's yeah. a very specific sound it's a very yeah. specific and and i i kind of want clarification on something because i feel like it stopped me if i'm going like if i'm yeah. if i'm taking turns out of school or whatever i feel like and, and it's one of my favorite records ever the neil young soundtrack to dead man yeah is like a father to a lot of that music yeah it's funny that wasn't mentioned so much as like we were really talking about all the jazzers who were embracing Americana. Yeah. That was more, which I still think that had something to do with too. Yeah. Um, there was a big movement of like American music around that. Uh-huh. 
Frizzell and, did a ton of that shit. Yeah, Nashville's a yeah. good example of that. And that was all super posy vibes. Right. Whereas we decided to make the Cormac McCarthy version of that. Right. Which is not positive at all. But the, the name to, of that record is Printing in the Infernal Method. Exactly. Which is a William Blake exactly. reference, yeah. which is found its way into the dead totally. men and yeah. there's like this like circle but, but, of... but dylan's always been esoteric yeah. like always like even if you look at like other titles of his he's always my man's occult you know yeah. he's not um he's i call him the well redneck that's my name <laughs> from, you know? that's about right yeah so it's like you know it, it's uh and he's continuing with that you know and he thinks about sound you know, he's been an influence on me too. It's like I'm really like I've been surrounded by people who think esoterically about sound. Yeah, they don't think technically, and they don't think even if they are technical, mm-hmm. they, they don't think that way. It's painting. It's different. So that's really influenced my work. You know, I've gotten to do that with them, and so hanging with Dylan, I um, did that record, and then went on a uh, Sun Earth tour. And that was my first... Doing front of house sound. Front of house sound. Yeah. And so that was my first interaction with um, both of those bands on the road. Got to know uh, Greg and Steven. That turned into, hey, why don't you do the Boris Sun record? Hey, why don't you do the Wolves in the Throne Room? Why don't you do Eagle Twin and this and that? My other projects. I mean, you know, it turned into like, I think 20 records or something. For Southern Lord. Yeah. Yeah. And that just became this really fertile time where, where... like even with the the alter record, like I mean, we were rocking like synthesizers and metal drums like then, and that's like a lot of people are doing that now. Yeah, but that was a while ago. But you know, know but it's like and, th- and, that music could not get its ass off the ground without. And I'm speaking from my opinion, my perspective. Like sure, you sure, need, sure. you need someone who really gets these different worlds. To to, yes. to help present it, you yes. know, and that's yeah. What you it, can't have a metal producer; just it's not a job for a metal producer. Yeah. And 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 I I say that with the utmost respect to all the metal producers who oh, I love. Totally. And I I'm can't. talking about like when I think about a well produced metal record, sure. just as like a sidebar. Like I listen to like those typo negative records. Yeah, they're amazing. Yeah, that's what that metal. That's what that music yeah, should or, sound or like. Or even like um, at like the same in town, time, like what Collins grade and right like, at the same time, I wouldn't know, necessarily those trust those guys. With someone with a no, violin, no, no, or and I land, I landed in the middle. Yeah, I landed in the middle, and I was lucky. I understood black metal and extreme music, noise, metal, classical music, jazz, right? Because I didn't ever put a boundary on sound, just right. sound, you know. And I think that's why I got those gigs, like because I could acclimate to that, you know. Mm-hmm. And then I had like. An influence of like those painkiller records, like Laswell's bass tone. Oz Fritz. Yeah. Yeah. And like the low end on those records, being seeing those guys live. For me, it's always been extreme music. It's been like Mainliner, Merzbell, mm-hmm. uh, Violent Unsen Geisha. Mm-hmm. That's more of my DNA than, yeah. than, than like Slayer or um, any of that stuff. Right. You know what I mean? So for me, I always like came to metal as just thinking about it as an extreme sound, right? And and that's where Stephen and I really connected mm-hmm. too, because Stephen's a high note. 
he's carrying a lot of metal through Heino in a lot of ways. Wait, wait, you mean as a, as a player or as a... As a player, yeah. I think sometimes, you know, like, uh, he's influenced aesthetically from Heino as well, like, improvising. I think Connate was heavily influenced by Heino, you know, I when see I that. listened to it. And when I... Vocally, when I, I definitely, know, yeah. And when I know Steven, you know, so well. If you listen to Nazarani, it seems like a cool... Orn and Barchi and Heino well, and Steven. I mean, what like, I dig about that is that they're playing instruments to great. fully support so what Heino's doing. Yeah. I, I don't know if I like, that so would great. if I'm off base, but no, like, no, no. I, Steven playing bass. Yeah, they're foiling their, yeah. their normal normal things, you know. And uh, you know, it just turned into this really beautiful long relationship that keeps going. You know, Steven and I still are making so much music all the time. That record alter is another one like. Yeah, we were saying about those Avon Kang records yeah. where it's like, that's a very sort of expansive and immersive world. Yeah. That totally. record, you really go through it on that record. Yeah. And that, that has a lot to do with Boris, too. Because of course if you, it does. If you look at Boris's career, they've always changed. Yeah. They're, they're chameleons, you know. And Atsuo is incredible musician conceptually. Mm -hmm. And I really, really love them. I mm -hmm. loved working with them. They opened up a lot in my, my yeah. brain too you know so yeah th those are all special for me when i look back now having done like this er, like wolves record wolves in the throne room record that just came out and like that it's like whoa it's like that's been so long now that it's an era of music that i get talked to a lot about Right, you know, like that's like ten years. Of I mean, all these bands work, have like a very specific world around. Them. I feel yeah, like, totally. Like, totally. like whether it's like Wolves in the Throne Room, or or Sun, obviously, yeah. or Asva. Like these bands yeah. sort of have like. Yeah, totally. Yeah. No, I agree. I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's interesting. I, it's I never thought I would be in a metal pantheon of right this kind of work. You know, right? You said yeah. so. That's a very a detour a really great detour for me that's led to like, you know, growing say with an artist like Steven and coming around back full circle to sitting in a room, you know, like a few, like a month ago with Rebo doing a record, mm -hmm. like a, a more free improvised record mm -hmm. and like working more in that capacity and like, Whoa, back kind of where I started in a way. And now, mm -hmm. now it's like, Instead of being more separate, all of that stuff seems to be more overlaid. It, it you really know? is. Like people know about each other more. It seems a little less, you know. I remember Wayne always just being like, what are you working on? Right. You know, I'm like uh, uh, Wayne Horvitz. And I, and I always be like, oh, it's this metal thing. And Stuart Dempster is going to play on it. Mm -hmm. He's like, all right, all right. You know? Right. And, you know, now I, I've been able. And this is something I've always strived on since I was young is uh, – this was the influence of the Seattle music scene was people were interacting in a way that doesn't happen here or anywhere that I've seen since. Yeah. There was like rock people playing with jazz, people playing with classical people way more intensely. It happens here, but there was something special. going. There was on something there. in the water and yeah. Chicago had that too. Yeah. Yeah. It did. With more specifically like punk and, and, yeah, and jazz. Vandermark and, yeah. um, uh, tortoise dudes. And, yeah. yeah. So I think for me, I'm always like, how can I bring something seemingly outside into something that I'm doing? Sure. Like, how can I get Avond and Jessica involved in, you know, this thing that I love with this thing that I love? That, you know? And that's a really, you know, there's, there's, there's two parts of that, or perhaps more than two parts of that conversation. But, you know, one thing for certain 
I'm so much more interested in people who come to the conversation with with a you know a broader expanse because you know if it's from the perspective of a recording engineer you know you can approach a, a metal record with something you learned about miking a snare from the jazz world always and that might yeah, be totally. and that's a very simple version of what yeah. we're talking about yeah. but you can really bring a lot of different flavors to the conversation yeah and you also don't have to think so rigidly like you right. don't have to you know there isn't a drum sound for metal there just isn't right there's a drum sound for the music whatever music you're working on that's the drums i mean you know and you here's know. here's maybe a dumb example but like do you know that record the soft bolton by flaming lips of course yeah it's a great record beautiful and yeah. that first cut which is like yeah. when you first hear it uh, we, uh 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 the fuck's the name of it uh i always forget yeah, yeah. but you know what me yeah yeah the first the yeah. first cut like i remember watching a documentary and the engineer Dan, uh friedman yeah who's amazing yeah, yeah like he did different drum micings for the choruses and the verses exactly I would love for him to track a jazz session. Exactly. And look at, yeah. you know, break down the music like that. Say, what does this section of music yeah. need? But that's an old school thing. Yeah. That's like the 70s. You did that. You talk to the musician. You would say things like, hey, man, in the chorus, like, don't play the ride as hard. Right. That was okay to do. Somewhere along the way, that got less okay to do because more and more people think things happen on the back end. And they happen all on the front end. Right. All the music, the sound has to be related to the playing, has to be related to the composition. The input needs to match the output. Exactly. Yeah. And that doesn't mean it has to be an exact replica. Like you can, you know, I mean, I think Albini is probably a great example of the input and the output being almost identical. Yeah. You know, and that's awesome. But I think you can also build a sonic world and have the skeletal system be the thing that happened. Mm -hmm. But there's, you know, if you were working on a record with a producer in the 70s, it was a collaboration. Somewhere along the way, there was, a, like, that became an adversarial position, probably in the 80s. But I think also you know? the, the, the relationship began to get parsed out partially, you know, for creative reasons, partially for monetary reasons, of course, you know? Totally. Like, hey, you want me to fucking offer my, yeah. my, my input yeah. in the session? Give me an extra 50%. Totally, know? totally, yeah. Now there's not, no engineer or producer has that luxury at all. You have to it, It's that. a very confusing relationship because yeah. it's not like going to the store and buying a pack of gum and yeah. giving the person 35 cents. Yeah. Like, you, yeah. you know, if... And and I think part of being a great engineer is also part of being a great musician is like you're there to support someone's vision. Of course. And so yeah. you really need to be in tune with social cues and sort of when your voice is welcome and totally. when it belongs. Yeah. And you also have to like understand like when you have the initial conversation with someone, especially for me, I, I approach things. I need a certain amount of freedom, a certain amount of mystery. Right. Like – to be able to create things in the music spontaneously mm -hmm. and then a certain amount of like orthodoxy in the basic tracking. Mm -hmm. And so you have to have a conversation with who you're going to work with. You have to say, okay, you like these things. Here's how I did it. This is what I would like to do with you. And then you, you just get really specific about the workflow. Cause the biggest thing about producing, it's not ideas, it's workflow, right? right. You're there to help them with their workflow. You keep them from from doing things in a way that creates more time, or overthinking things, or creating more problems later. Well, you're also—I mean—you're the designated driver in a lot of ways. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, totally. Or yeah, yeah. Like you say, hey man, we got you know another four hours in the studio. We should do this. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and that's like you got to know when you're going down a path a little too long, 
when someone's thinking about something that they're doing too long or when yeah. you've already got it. You also, you know, a lot of my sessions, I'm I'm not playlisting like 30 takes or something. Mm-hmm. I'm like, no, 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 man. Maybe on this one you should do more like this. Mm, what do you think about this? Okay. Well, it, you write the thing. But you, if you're you also thinking about your workload, when you yeah. open that session to mix, yeah. you don't want no, hours you can't and hours of shit to you sit through. And more and more, I think a lot of people are thinking like, Oh, you go in and you book four hours at a studio, and then you you get it done. Uh huh. You know what I mean. And, and you, you have a lot of post. stuff, but yeah. then you have like forty hours at home. It's like when you could actually just plan the session really well and have it done. Right. You know what I mean? Like it's done. <laughs> right. You know, and have that's, your chops together. Like, play your parts. And well. I know everybody's got like pro tools and stuff, but but you know, if you if you talk about it, like no, that wasn't the take. Do it again. But more and more, I'm finding, you know, people want to just say, no, we'll edit it. And I'm like, no, man, we're going to play. But this thing, it depends who's doing it. It's like, I would, you know, I was just having this conversation with a friend the other day who's a pretty great engineer where like, man, I wish more classical ensembles would look to the world of pop and rock music for their production cues because it's like, I agree. Like, put a close mic on everything and then record in sections, you know, really like, like sculpt yeah. a, a recorded document, you know, take advantage of these computers. Horace Quartet's a good example of people that do that. Yeah. You know? I think they, I mean, there's, there's great examples. Avon's a great example. Exactly. Great, Avon's a great example. And he does not fit into any mold. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, I mean, there's, there was a time, I think Zorn was in that. I think uh, Naked City was completely. No, Zorn is complete time, in that. You know? He knows that a yeah. string quartet should scare the shit out of you when you listen to yes. it. And what's yeah. scarier, having the sound right up in your face or having it. Yeah. On a soundstage. Yeah. No, it's in your face. Yeah. But I mean, you know, that's asking a lot. Most of the people who get into this business are rock. They're in the rock world. Yeah. And they're not interested in that stuff. They're not right. reading like Morton Feldman quotes or... Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that's that's few and far between. Right. You know, indie rock has had a pretty detrimental effect on a, yeah? lot, of, a lot of that thinking. How so? You know? Um, I think just plainness, like yeah. that earnestness in sound is... It's cute. It's cute. It's precious, yeah, it right? It's I mean, I think we're kind of past that now. It seems to be more in this like... It's a little more aggressive. Luxurious right? decadence of synthesizer pads now. Which yeah. Which I kind of am enjoying. You're into it? Sometimes. Yeah. yeah. I, I like the sort of like decline of civilization and like... <laughs> We've reached this sort of like Hunger Games sound in electronic right. music, you know, where like every tech guy has a pretty awesome modular synth, you know. Right. That's an interesting. Thing. Yeah, it's it's not it it hasn't beckoned to me. Yeah, it's like when Rome was burning, there was you know Nero playing his violin. Sure. But like you know when America's burning, there's a guy with his fucking euro rack. <laughs> I have to say, musically, I've I've that yeah. I've not heard that call. It hasn't beckoned me. I haven't run. No, no. It. I mean, but we all you know. I mean. Uh, John Carpenter is a good soundtrack for right now. John Carpenter, <laughs> though, the thing about John Carpenter is yeah. that he exists on his own plane. Yeah, he's it's a it's like uh, outsider art. A lot of people try to do it. A lot of people <laughs> no, yeah, try to it. you know take cues from what he's done because they're not simple. They're not. There's, he's the simplest. It's dumb, but it's but just like we were saying about deep, like a great deep. engineer is going to have this thing where they can bring in all these different influences. Like that's a guy who that sound has been arrived at. Yeah, the Halloween because 3 soundtrack work. is probably one of the greatest. Halloween 3? In, yeah. Season of the Witch. I don't know that one specifically. Halloween 3 is probably like the greatest. That's a huge influence on my synthesizer. Halloween 3. Playing. Yeah. The movie's really bad. Sure. But really good. 
But the soundtrack, there's especially, there's a song called, and this is totally a dig against Vangelis. I know they were. It's called Chariots of Pumpkins. <laughs> Just such a, it's an amazing piece of music, you know. So You're a Vangelis fan. Oh, yeah, big time. Yeah. Big time. You know, I'm one of these people, like, I quite honestly, like, I rebelled against that shit for so long because it sounded, I think everyone did, yeah. it sounded like the dirty parts of, you know, growing up in the 80s. Sure. Yeah. You know? Yeah, but that's back. That's back. Like, it's, chorus is back and, right. you know, the the decadence of, like, you know, cocaine usage is back for people right. you know, of younger ilk. Yeah, the Tinder. You know, so it's yeah. all it's all, like... I don't know. It makes sense that people are a little bit detached from their sounds as much as they are right yeah. now. Yeah. You know? That but, things are happening inside of boxes again. And like, you know, but I just got that newest John Carpenter collection, and it's like, you put it on, and it's like, yeah, it's John Carpenter. There's no questions asked. And like, I yeah, yeah. hear a dude working. Oh, yeah, there's a guy in there. Yeah, I, I hear sure. it. Like, yeah. someone's not just clicking, like, like you know, an arpeggiator, yeah. you know? No, no, no. There's, there's, yeah, it's good. I mean, I really liked the Atticus Ross Trent Reznor Halloween that came out. Did you hear it? No. It came out on Sacred Bones. It's cool. It's a, yeah, it's awesome. It was like a tribute. There's a bunch of people doing it. I mean, let's talk about horror things. music for a second because like that music, and I'm talking about slasher films from the 80s, yeah. which is what we all grew up with. Yeah. Has yeah, there's the American stuff and then there's the Italian, Italian stuff. stuff. Right. Yeah. Both well, are, I mean, the Italian stuff in terms of sound is much classier. Yeah, yeah. It's all it's coming about from Ennio Morricone. Yeah. And, and still feel Cipriani. Right. And, Brava and all those cats. Yeah, there's some goblins. Italian. Goblin. Yeah, yeah. Goblins, another one. Um, yeah. I mean, I love that music. But there's something about like, and I might be going off the rails here, but like, when I think about that sound world, when I think about the sound world of Friday the Thirteenth, of of Nightmare on Elm Street, of of Halloween, all of these films that were like ultra important to me growing yeah, up. Totally. I can't separate them from. Black hoodies, autumn weather, stomach ache from popcorn and candy, and like throwing eggs at cars. Yeah, I'm with that. I'm with that. That's very. It's nah, a yeah. very important world for me. Totally. Yeah, horror movies were were uh, as violent and horrible as they are. They were a bit of a um, sanctuary for me as a youngster. You know. But you know, I I think we should we should give them the credit. Do that. It's like those are comedies. Those films are comedies. Yeah, some of them are, but some of them, like... Like, when was the first time you saw a horror movie where you're like, oh, shit, this is like a fucked up movie? Well, I always consider Blue Velvet that, but... Yeah, but that's not a slasher <laughs> film. No, no, it's not. That's what it's I'm saying. Not, but, like, I mean, I'm trying to think of, like, one that wasn't a comedy. Like, Freddy is a comedian. I don't know, man. He was, but the first Nightmare on Elm Street is pretty intense. Pretty grim, yeah. yeah. Uh, the Exorcist. Right. Damien... Um, Omen. Omen. The, Rosemary's that, Baby. I'm more, I'm more like that stuff hit me harder. Now, The yes, stuff that felt yes. like I, I was getting a book I wasn't supposed to read. And, yes, you know. absolutely. But I'm talking about like... Yeah, Sleepaway Camp. Yeah. Manhunter. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the, the, it's All those sound worlds mean so much to yeah, me. <laughs> yeah, but they're good. They're good, man. I listened to Manhunter the other day and I was like, God, this is fucking sick. Yeah. It's a really beautiful soundtrack and it's... You know, and, and I, I just started doing more soundtrack stuff. I'm, I'm like, from a production standpoint, or like, a, yeah, I'm co-producing um, a soundtrack. Do you know Panos Cosmatos? He did Beyond the Black Rainbow. Uh huh. I'm co-producing Johan Johansson's new soundtrack for that film. Okay. And um, that's, uh, I can't talk about too many specifics sure. about it or anything, but that's like, I'm now that we're talking about this, like, it's like all of that. Is definitely 
coming to play for me. You know, it's a, it's sort of a, the stuff he's been writing for this is really beautiful. And, and it's, it's that feeling yeah. that we're talking about, but we're going to flip it on its end, you know? Yeah. So where a lot of people are like being nostalgic, you know, there's a huge nostalgia industry behind that kind of stuff. Like Stranger Things is completely... I can't even get started with that. Yeah. It's Don't. a nostalgic... It's garbage. Thing, right. But, you know, you can go further with this stuff. So we're we're going to have a bunch of cool guests and... Well, that's the, the I mean, that's the, forward. that's the work. It's like, yeah. that, you know, it drives yeah. me fucking crazy, man. I'm going to go on yeah. a rant for a second, but it's like, that's fine. to me, I, the, when I, when I distill the process down of, of hearing of, of, I hear something that's confusing to me, Yeah. but I, I, I know there's something to it. So I yeah. go back to it. I go back to it. I internalize it. And then I say, Hey, I want to, I want to say something back to it. You know, and I deal with it in that way. And I feel like I arrived at that through, um, a desire to interact with things with purity. I'm sorry. I don't mean to pat myself on the back, but when I see something like Stranger Things, it's like, it's cynical. It's gross. Like you're taking the font, you're taking like certain tropes that are like the most basic aspects of, of what you're stealing from and then selling it back to a bunch of morons who never experienced it firsthand. Yeah. Rant done. Yeah. No. No, I mean, we can go further. We can go to J.J. Abrams. I hate and, that I mean, shit, man. Yeah. Well, I mean, isn't that that the nostalgia industry? I mean, that's a real thing. There's a real thing. But it's not, though, because if it was the nostalgia industry, people like you and me would see it. They'd be like, oh, I'm into that. They did it well. Oh, no, it's not for us. It's not for us. Yeah, but the people that are like buying it, they don't realize that, like, oh, no, this isn't the real shit. This is like the Canal Street Fugazi shit. Like, you need to... Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I think there's people are like fine with it. Like, yeah, I'll take that Star Wars. That's fine. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I don't think they're going too deep. I think that's our fault. Yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right. <laughs> you know, and I mean, I, you know, I can enjoy some of that stuff just as like a, the, I guess the same way somebody would like get something out of the Kardashians or something. No, there's maybe nothing there. Like, you know, yeah. No, well, there's nothing right. It could be true. How's New York been treating you? Great. I yeah. love it. What well, you got here in April? Yeah, I got here in April, yeah. and I feel like you haven't been around. I've much. been in like and out you, of town. Yeah. yeah, I mean, my schedule's starting to catch up to now, where you know I get six, seven months out, so it, it's starting to now be where I'm going to be around. Yeah, but, but definitely, You've, like being here has reminded me heavily of my love for jazz. Yeah, and my love for uh, Axiom Records, collab- well. cl- yeah. collaborations, and my love for Zorn's Zodic label and. Uh, more so Avant, mm-hmm. the original. Yeah, the Japanese DIW. How I heard so much stuff like Rebo and all that stuff from that label, and then being around like free improvisers and feeling again a very similar pull like I did in Seattle to want to take my metal friends and that and start to yeah. to do some stuff that's like um in not. Like Axiom Records, I don't want to say that, but inspired in the sense that, like, why can't we get, like, O'Malley and, like, Milford Graves? Or why can't we start to, like, do this again? It would be so legendary. Yeah. So the first session I kind of put together with Shazad was um, this new quartet, which doesn't have a name, but it's Skerrick, Rebo, Mike Clark from the Headhunters, Mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, what did I forget? Shazad on bass. And it's killer. You guys so tracked it already. We did two sessions. Yeah, yeah. Two days. 
it's awesome. There's more music than I can go through. Yeah. It sounds like primetime kind of sure. something. But the most amazing thing about that session was I thought Mike was going to come in and do something. I, I forget how old he is now, maybe 72. Do you know Mike Clark at all? Do Not you know personally. I'm, I'm aware yeah. of his, yeah. Brand X, you know. Right. Um, he's like classic. You know, I always think of him as like swinging behind Herbie and like all the headhunter stuff, you know. Or him and Paul Jackson, like, right. doing, doing that one displacement kind of thing. He came in and played some out shit that I didn't even, I, I didn't know he played like that. And so he, you know, he was talking about Elvin a lot. And then mm. when I'd hear him play, it was just like, man, that's so different than how people play out now. Mm-hmm. People play out very idiomatically now, you know? Like in my yeah. my opinion, yeah, yeah, some people. And this was like out, like like Alice Coltrane out. This is like metaphysically out. Mm-hmm. You know? And so in that ensemble with Mark and stuff, it was like pretty cool to hear that. And mm-hmm. also Mark and and him being in kind of close vicinity generationally. But Mark's punk, and Mike would have been coming out of like bitches brew fusion land. You know, you know, Mark. Is a working man, yeah, yeah, through a, and through, yes, like generationally, like yeah. that. It's his origin, yeah. you know. Yeah, um, he does a lot of work. Mm-hmm. He's on a lot of shit, Love and him. sometimes you you will find yourself in this. Like I will find myself like listening to a record that I never would have come. You know, like a some like singer songwriter record shows up, and I'm like, what the fuck? There he is, you know. Yeah. Like he just shows up. I mean, he's he's incredible. He's the well, best. Yeah, I got to do a couple sessions with him being here and i felt like that felt really good you're in the presence of greatness yeah it's it's fucking rebo yep yeah i did some ceramic dog stuff yeah and then i did i put this together and did this and he was nice enough to go along and uh that's a for me that's a bit of a return yeah um to that downtown stuff and i i want to find an outlet uh with these releases i don't know how i'm gonna do it yet but I kind of want to get something going in a way like Axiom had, where it's like, how the fuck is Sonny Chirac playing with that guy? Or, you know, like where there was these older cats in the 80s and they, you know, Laswell was probably young and coming up and like had some money. And And he was, yeah, he pulled all the shit happen, you know? And I, I feel like there's, I feel like there's something like that that could transpire in New York right now. And there's a lot of it that is that I'm probably ignorant of. No, too, I mean you know? the bones are all there. It's yeah. it's just sort yeah. of pulling it together yeah. and and So that was my that was my first attempt at like wanting yeah. to produce like in a more old school way. Yeah. You know, like happens if you get these people together. It might be bad. Could could, be. could have been bad. And a lot of people don't like, you know, someone coming in in that way you know no no but i think people in new york are open to it i mean as long as they're getting paid and like <laughs> shit's good you know then 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 i think i think once you break that barrier down of how it can go yeah and then they start to trust maybe that you might have a good idea as to why those people are even in a room yeah um then some shit can happen and i, I think that's something that i'm really looking forward to about exploring in new york more is like and even with my own music like you know, I love collaborations of people that shouldn't be collaborating. Mm-hmm. I love it. Or things that you're like, oh, yeah, of course that should have happened. Why, did yeah. that, why didn't that happen? Uh, and, that, you know, I said that to Mark. I was like, oh, I can't believe you and Mark haven't ever, like, 
been around because it's New York and it's jazz and mm-hmm. why not? But they were just in a different thing. They sure. Were, they were like yeah, I mean, Lenny look, White or, you know, they were hanging out over there. Yeah. And, and then Mark and Zorn and those guys are over here, you know, yeah. really younger. And so that was even cool just to like, when you get kind of those people in the room and you start hearing stories, then you start to hear the commonalities of what they've done. Yeah. You start to hear like, oh, you played with that guy? Oh, man, I played with that guy. Da, da, da. Yeah, then yeah, you yeah. start to hear how two working men have crossed paths but never knew it. Right. You know, and then you got a guy who's even 10 years younger, like Skerrick, who's got a whole nother layer of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and you got Shazad, who's like way more known for other things and how he's interacting in that. And, and, and you know, I think it's cool, man, to get those kind of collaborations. And I, I want more generational stuff going on. Yeah. Like, because um, it's easy for people right now to make music in their bedrooms alone. I think it's good for everyone to yeah. engage in that kind of activity. Yeah. And it's like, I'm not telling people what to play or anything. I'm just trying to set up scenarios. Yeah. And that's like something I'm, I feel like I'm good at and I want more of. Yeah. I want to make those records that you're like, what the fuck? Or yeah. how did that happen? Yeah, or like, yeah. Or like, why is there a fucking tape echo on Pharaoh? Because there you should know? be. There should be. <laughs> there should be. In this particular moment, there should yeah. be. You know? So... There's all those guys, man, that want to play. Like, that's the thing about, like, hearing Mike Clark play out. Then I was like, man, I've never heard you do that. He's like, no one lets me. This is a 72-year-old man who's yeah. a master drummer. Yeah. And, like, you all of a sudden, like, say, like, you're do not your giving shit. it to him. Right. You're just making a space. You're holding space and saying, well, you guys just play music. I don't care what you do. And that's the thing about, like, working musicians that sometimes they never get to do. Yeah. So if you can make like an environment where working musicians get to do what they want to do, not what they have to do, man, that's pretty rad, you know? I think that's so. That's luxurious to be in that position. Yeah. In my opinion. So, yeah. So, you know, for me, like hearing Mike, Mike do that, it was like, you know, I mean, we all heard Mark play out, but I don't think we've heard Mike play out. And it's fucking cool. Yeah. You know? So. All right, man. Yeah. I think we did the damn thing. Okay, we're done. Yeah. Yeah. Is there any other? No, this is good. <laughs> Thank you, Randall. I'm glad it finally <laughs> fucking happened. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, man. Totally. All right. That was Randall Dunn. He's the shit. I'm down with Randall. Um, by the way, all the music on today's show, the stuff you hear behind me, the stuff you heard up front, that's Master Musicians of Bukaki. Shit fucking rules, man. Sort of like a, you know direct descendant of Sun City Girls. Can I say that? I just did. Randall Dunn, check him out. If you're around on December 5th, come to Roulette. And um, yeah, man, that's it. Uh, I got a good one for you next week. Woo, you guys watch out. Next week's a good one. Okay, that's it. Talk to you soon. Bye.